Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you enjoy this podcast series, will you do a little bit of AA service by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? It's another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. On today's podcast, my friend Chris W. shares a story of alcoholism's unimpeded march through a man's life, sweeping aside all of the talents and abilities to dominate his daily living. While alcoholism showed up clearly in his family tree, it skipped his parents and landed squarely on Chris with his first drink at 17. Though he excelled at sports, especially golf, his family's move to Texas in his senior year of high school created a struggle to fit in. Fortunately, alcohol entered the picture and created the comfort and camaraderie he sought. Frequent drinking and marijuana use during his college years and early in his career accompanied Chris's soaring talents on the links, but his growing use of booze, weed, and later cocaine became toxic and infiltrated all of his decisions and ambitions. By the time he found AA at age 29, Chris's life had deteriorated around him to the extent that his golf handicap no longer meant anything compared to the handicap his alcoholism and addictions had created. As he dragged into his first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, Chris was clearly ready and willing to follow AA's formula for sobriety and a better life. Since getting sober, Chris has burnished his sobriety by immersing himself in many of the service opportunities available in the AA community, most notably his involvement in a sober recreation committee in which he helps organize and promote sporting and social events for AA members throughout the area. He leads by example from the center of the program, attending regular meetings and sponsoring other men. His enthusiasm for all things AA is infectious and leaves all who know him with a broad smile on their faces to match his. He is, without a doubt, one of the most upbeat people I know in AA, and it was a joy to interview him. So crank up your old podcast player and indulge yourself in AA recovery interviews for the next 65 minutes as you listen to my conversation with my fine friend and AA brother, Chris W. Hi, I'm Chris W. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Hi, Chris. I'm so glad that you could do this podcast today. Here we are sitting on a beautiful, sunny day, warm day here in Houston, and we just came out of a meeting. Wouldn't you normally be out on the golf course on a day like today? You know, normally I would, but I've been traveling a tremendous amount this year, playing golf, working, mm-hmm. doing business, spreading good seed of sobriety to other people. And so I'll be playing tomorrow. So if that's any consolation, <laughs> uh, Friday is definitely a day that I would be playing golf. But it's a beautiful afternoon, not too humid. Yeah. You know, a little, little cloud cover. Yeah. Well, I guess listeners will get a good picture of what your avocation is. Every time I see you, you've always got some nice golf attire on. And uh, we've been in a lot of meetings over the years together. Yes, we have. It's a pl- always a pleasure seeing you, Howard. You, you're very welcoming. And to me, that's the biggest thing that we need to do for each other in, in the program is be welcoming to each other and make people feel a part of this, this fellowship. Yeah, and I think we did that pretty well today at the meeting. There were two or three new guys. And the one guy who talked, who actually broke down while he was talking, uh, that was a real poignant story about wanting to get sober. 
I was really surprised. He's a great young man. I've seen him at treatment, a specific one here in Houston that we do, we take meetings to. Mm-hmm. He's always got a great attitude. He was sitting in the front row. He was involved. And so I was very surprised to hear about that. I sent him a message in the meeting and I said, buddy, let me know how I can help you. Call me. Let's go to lunch. Let's grab some coffee. Yeah. Whatever it is to, to try to get him, you know, back back in there. And there's some other guys in that meeting who actually the group was in shock about when they with 20 plus years slipped. I'm thinking of one man in particular who's now sober again five or six years, which mm-hmm. is which is really terrific. Now, you've been sober for how long? So uh, my sobriety day is July 30th, 2004. So if I can make it a couple more months, it'd be 19 years this July. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you. Yeah, I got chills when you said that, by the way, because to <laughs> me, it's the most important thing I've ever done for myself Yeah, is get sober. And then that allows me to be the best Chris. I can be the best brother, the best son, the best husband, stepdad, sponsor. You know, if I don't have my sobriety, so that's why I make it the most important thing in my life. You do it all, don't you? I do. I do. Did you ever consider that when you were very first sober that you would have all of these additional things that you would have to do being sober and maybe question whether or not you'd actually be able to do them? Yeah, I, I definitely questioned, you know, the program because I didn't really know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to save my job and my relationship when I came in the rooms. Mm-hmm. And so I went through my company's EAP program. And they linked me up with a couple of uh, licensed therapists who actually were both in the program. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, after five minutes of speaking to both of them, they both said, you should go to an AA meeting. And so how it all transpired and how everything kind of worked out, I was just trying to to get, like I said, just keep my job because I thought that was the most important thing. And then I thought my relationship with a woman that was also uh, an alcoholic that was my most important thing in life. And little did I know what God had in store for me. So you had all these things that you were, that you were dealing with at that time when you first got sober, wondering whether or not you'd be able to stay sober, getting through them all. Mm-hmm. So how does a nice young guy like you <laughs> end up in a program like Alcoholics Anonymous? Gosh, you, you got me on that one because I'm still wondering. But when I say this, and I mean it when I say it, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. Being a part of this fellowship. And a lot of people that know me know that I'm probably going to have a smile on my face. I'm probably going to go up to him and talk to him. And, mm. you know, I'm just really high on life because I've been given a second chance at life. Yeah. And, and so I try to take that. But, um, you know, when I went to my first meeting, I was told by the second guy, the licensed therapist, he said, you should go to the dark side, 6.30 a.m. meeting. And I was like, man, that's really early. Yeah. But I was at that point willing to do whatever. And for those that know me, I'm not on time a lot. I'm usually on time or late. And so I was trying to find this meeting and I transposed the numbers. 701 was the address. I was at 710 across the street. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm in this building and there's no windows and there's a lot of doors. And every door that I was grabbing was locked. And so I'm grabbing all these doors and I'm getting a little frustrated. And I'm like, man, where is this meeting? And so I walked back down to the front door and I walked out on the steps. And I just said, I just said, you know, where's this meeting? And, you know, at that point, God intervened and he lifted my head up. And I looked across the street and I saw all these cars. And I'm Uh. thinking, 
that's got to yeah. be it. There you, you go. Got to be it. And so I, I went across the street. And so I was about 30 minutes late to the meeting. And at that time, you had one room straight down the hallway and the dark side meeting was to the left. Right. And the dark side meeting, they always keep the doors open. That's like one of the you know, policies of that meeting is we never close the doors because we don't want somebody to not come in because they don't feel welcome. Yeah. And, and I remember I, I kind of slithered in the back and I sat in this seat and I was hoping nobody would see me. And, you know, the number one thing I remember about my first meeting, other than there was about 15 people in there. Yeah. And I liked what I heard was that five, at least five gentlemen came up to me and said, come back tomorrow. Yeah. And I was like, I can handle that. I can do that. Yeah, I got sober at that club uh, over 35 years ago, and it's still a very, very good, good place. You know, I think I might have done something similar. Like, I wasn't quite sure what building it was in. It's, it's a little bit fuzzy to me at the time, but that particular club is one of the bigger clubs in town, and it has saved a lot of people's it lives has. over the years. And I still go there today. You know, I still yeah. attend that meeting. I guess your life needed saving at that time, huh? It did. Where does all this start? Let, let's, let's look at that for a minute, because I, it's very rare that I find somebody that was living the most perfectly wonderful <laughs> life and then went into AA. Right. Looking back at your, let's say, your family of origin, yeah. what did all that look like and how did that predict becoming an alcoholic? You know, my family of origin is, is they're a phenomenal phenomenal family. Mm -hmm. We were not a big family, but we were really close. And so, you know, my mom uh, and dad are both from the Windy City. Mm -hmm. So they grew up in, in Chicago. Um, my dad took a job on the campus of Purdue University uh, in 1971, I think. Hmm. And so myself, my brother, and my sister were all born in West Lafayette, Indiana. It's a good-sized town, 100,000 people. I think they have about 150,000 people now. And you know, had a great childhood. We went to church. You know, we did a lot of family stuff. I played a lot of sports. And then my dad took a job with the company that he was working for in more of a leadership role. Uh -huh. So they were based uh, in a town about three hours from West Lafayette in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So we moved there and we were only there about three years. And then he said, we're going to move to Texas. And I said, what? He said, yeah, we're going to move to Texas. I said, okay. And so when we moved here, um, to the Kingwood area, which is a suburb here in Houston. Um, that's probably the biggest part of my story because I just didn't feel like I fit in. How old were you at that I time? I was 15. So about to start my sophomore year in, uh, in high school. Uh, I was a tennis player at the time. All the new kids that came to the school, we were all in like a class together. So I had some kids that I knew and that I liked, mm -hmm. but it was really hard to fit in with all the other Kingwood kids. And, and I was looking for something to be a part of, you know, and the tennis thing didn't work out. So then I started working full time when mm -hmm. I was when I turned 16 and I worked in fast food. I worked at McDonald's and I worked at Sonic. Now, when you say full time, you say in lieu of going to school. No, I was still in school, but I was I'd work at nights and I work on the weekends. So you were really going at it. Yeah, I was. You know, it's kind of the way I do things. You know, I, I go pretty hard at whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's work golf, family. Was that to avoid some of the issues that you were having, either fitting in or, or feeling like you wanted to be in Kingwood? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think you're always looking for a way to cope or a way to, yeah. you know, maybe not think about a situation. So if you're keeping yourself busy or you're keeping your mind busy, I didn't have as much time to think about that. 
so you get to Texas at age 15. What was going on where you were living previously with regard to any drinking that you had done at that point? Because most of the people I've interviewed for the show, it's almost universal that the drinking starts at about 13 or 14, usually as the result of whatever went on previously. Can you kind of walk us back to that part of your life? Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I'm probably in the uh, minority on this one. Sure. I didn't take my first drink until I was 17. So the summer before my senior year is when I took my first drink. And I, I stopped when I was 29 and a half. So basically 12 and a half years of, you know, partying, drinking, drug use. That's my story too, believe it or not. I, I started at 18 and I ended at 30 and went hard the whole time. Wow, that's cool. You yeah. and I have that same thing in common. There's not many of us out yeah, there. You know, yeah. Most people have drank for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe even 70 years. So you had the opportunity, obviously, prior to 17. You had the opportunity. Why didn't you, why didn't you drink before 17? I'm not quite sure. Um, the group of friends that I had in Fort Wayne, so mm-hmm. 12 to 15, yeah, we were a really tight group of guys, and we loved sports, and we loved playing sports and watching sports, and you know, we did a lot of things together. Um, I had a paper route before I was 16. That was something you could do, you know, and not have to be of age to work. So, I did that too. <laughs> um, and it was only I only had 50 papers on my route. It wasn't even a big route, but. It was something to do. You know, Mm -hmm. I've always had that working mentality. I've always enjoyed working, um, whether I was making a lot of money or whether I was making a difference doing something Mm -hmm. or whether I was, you know, changing, you know, my life or somebody else's life. I always enjoyed working. But yeah, we did have some opportunities, but I just, at the time, it wasn't something that interested me. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wasn't curious enough to, to take that first drink and see how it made me feel. So fast forward to the summer before my senior year, um, a friend of mine that lived on our street was having Mm -hmm. a a party and I ended up hanging out with some kids that were, that lived close to me. We were all kind of same thing, kind of really tight. We played sports together. Mm -hmm. We played cards, you know, we we did a lot of things. And then one of our buddies met kind of another group of friends and they were the ones that kind of introduced us into the drinking and smoking Mm -hmm. of marijuana. Yeah. Um, And that, so that first time I drank, I had four Miller Genuine Drafts, and I blacked out. I don't know if you heard the guy share in the meeting today. When, when I'm in these meetings, my, my sponsor always told me to listen for the similarities and not the differences. Yeah. And I heard a lot of similarities today, just as I do at every meeting I go to. So you started with four beers. What did you expect when you took that first beer? What did you know about drinking and drunkenness that you were looking forward to or maybe dreading? So I'll start with the dreading. I knew it was gonna, wasn't going to taste good. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think I remember that. How did you know that? I had, I had, had a sip before yeah. with my dad. I didn't, I didn't like the taste of that. You uh-huh. know, I, like, I like things to taste. I like my coffee to taste good. I don't drink diet sodas because I think they taste like crap. Yeah. I like to drink fully. I call it fully leaded. Sure. I like Coke and Dr Pepper and Mr Pibb and and things like that. But so I think that's what I was dreading. But I, w- I think at that point, I was curious enough how it was going to make me feel. Mm. How many was it going to take me to get a feeling, right? Something yeah. that I had never experienced before. And I think it was like one and a half before I started to kind of, I was like, okay, I feel different. Yeah. And then I didn't know when to say when, and I got to two, and then I got to three, and then got to four, and then 
I forgot what happened after that. So you blew past that that perfect feeling. Yeah. One and a half or two beers mm-hmm. to go to four and then black out. Yeah. Was the blackout such that you went to sleep and woke up later? I, I passed out for like an hour and they, they were still going and, yeah. and I passed out. And that same night I smoked some marijuana too because they were doing that. Yeah. And then I realized that you should never smoke marijuana when you're drunk because then I, I got sick. Yeah. yeah. It was really, and so my first experience, I don't really think it was a good experience, but something intrigued me enough that we did it again, and then we did it again, and then it really became part of who I was back then. Did it happen to the other members of your little group? Did any of them get sick or black out? Or? One other guy did. Yeah. One other guy, but, and so like I said, I, I just, I was so focused on what I was doing that I wasn't paying as much attention to what they were doing. So maybe they only had one or two. Yeah. Or maybe they had their tolerance was was different than mine. Or maybe they didn't have any. You know, I mean I think that's one of the things today, if I fast forward to today, I was always worried about what people would think if I wasn't drinking. And you know what? They don't care. I can count on this many fingers right. how many times somebody has really cared if I was drinking or not or asked me about it. Yeah, I get that. And I and the same that was the same for me too. It always was. But I didn't black out very often, so I had to remember and be drunk through the stuff that I was doing, and and that was tough. Um, Of course, I could always blame my behavior on being drunk at the time. Mm -hmm. When you had taken that, those four beers, and then you drank, and then you smoked the pot later, Mm -hmm. what was your attitude towards doing it again? Yeah, I think I was, I was curious to see if I could do it better next time, uh-huh. right? Not black out and not get sick and try to enjoy. Because, you know, at 17, you know, you're, you're about to be a senior. You're about to be the big shot, big man on campus. It's, it was definitely part of the culture of the school uh-huh. that I went to. You know, all those kids had gone to school for many years together. They knew each other. Yeah. You know, getting ready for college. You got you to gotta practice, right, before you go to college. You got to be a good part of year before you go to college. And so I, I was definitely intrigued to, to do it again, for sure. So did you just go full bore at that point? Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, I was a binging blackout drinker in my, in my 12 and a half years. That's what I did. And I mean, I didn't blackout every time, but a lot of times I had to ask the people I was with, hey, did I do anything stupid last night? Or did I hurt anybody? Yeah. Or did I do anything that I need to apologize for? Yeah. So I was having to clean up the, the mess, you know, on the next day a lot. Well, you know, one of the advantages of being a binge drinker is that even though you're concentrating a lot of the alcoholic behavior and blacking out within a, a certain period of time, there usually is an interval between the binges during which you get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was your experience like with that? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it takes me back to, you know, if I just talk about, you know, my college career, I went to school in Louisiana, which mm-hmm. obviously partying and having a good time is a big part of, of the culture there. And, you know, I, I wish I could do it differently, mm-hmm. but I always tell people, hey, that's part of my story. Oh, yeah. And so I was able to, to go in, um, you know, my college career, I started and then I stopped because I failed. Mm-hmm. I got a 1.3 GPA my first semester. Hmm. And I told my parents I was going to go work full time. Hmm. Um, and, and I had a different job at this time. And then I realized that I needed another job to pay for 
and my parents were really good to me in terms of making me work for things and they really challenged me to, to become independent. And so were they aware of you drinking and, and marijuana smoking? Yeah. Yeah, they were. I, they didn't tell me I couldn't do it. Yeah. But they told me if I got caught, I was on my own, you know, mm -hmm. until I turned 21, obviously. And then you're know, 21. It's, you know, drinking's legal, but yeah. you know, drinking and driving, which I did a tremendous amount of, and I'm not proud of. Yeah. Still don't know how I, I never got a DWI. I mean, um, I should have had 10 of them, you know, for as many times as I did it. But uh, was there any alcoholism in the family? Was there anything to inform them of the possibility of you having the same problem they saw in their own families? Or was there not much of that going around? Th there was. There was. Yeah. And, and I think most of us can say that somewhere in our lineage, we have mm -hmm. multiple you know, figures that we knew. And so in my family, the person I remember the most was, was my uncle, my mom's brother, uh -huh. the middle brother uh, of, of their family. Robert was his name. And he was a really, really got along with him well, loved him dearly. And he had 17 years sober when he passed away. Hmm. And he passed away pretty young. Um, he was in his early 70s when he passed away. In AA, he had 17 years. And then his dad, so my mom's father, was an alcoholic who died when he was 47. So I never met, his name was John. Mm. Never met John, uh, but had was a terrible alcoholic, would leave for days and weeks at a time and just go on a, a complete binge. Do you remember it being acknowledged at the time that these people were alcoholic or was it uh, not talked about in your home? No, it, it was pretty well known. You know, at the time when I first knew Bob, he was drinking. I was younger at that time, so I, it, I didn't know, you know, I didn't pay as much attention when I was younger yeah. that, that he was, but learned a lot more after, as I got older and then as he got sober. Mm. And, you know, he was around more, right? So were these your formative years that, that you were seeing this behavior with your grandfather and your uncle? Were you just a kid when all this was yeah. going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my great-grandfather on my dad's side, or my great-grandfather, so my dad's grandfather was also an alcoholic too. So I, I definitely had it on both sides. But neither of my parents, I mean, still to this day, I've never seen either one of my parents intoxicated to where they couldn't control themselves. Yeah, neither of my parents drank either. Yeah. And it's just amazing how much you and I have in common. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were a kid, what was your perception of alcoholism? Is the, when you looked at them or their behavior, the stories that were being told about them or knowing what they were doing, how did that make you feel when you were a kid? You know, so the stories that I heard about my grandfather, my mom's dad, were, were horrible. When you hear stories like that, you want to do everything you can to avoid that, right? But then I saw my uncle, Robert, I felt like he was able to function, hmm. you know, with, with the alcohol, which is completely 180 degrees from his father, right? So I think that probably contributed some to, to my development. And then as I went into my disease, maybe I referenced that. And then when I had a bad binge, I thought about my grandfather and I said, well, shit, you know, it didn't work out very well for him, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe I need to take a couple of weeks. You had both sides of the same yeah. coin pretty much, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. That's interesting. All of the knowledge that you have of this is following you into an adolescence and your teenage years that you didn't start drinking until 17. Uh, did you ever have any problems in college? What was going on in that environment? 
Yeah, you know, in college, so I ended up playing college golf uh, uh-huh. in Louisiana yeah. at, at McNeese State University. And, you know, I also think that that's a big part of my story and who I am today. As you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, I, I might like to hit the little white ball occasionally. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's something that I do a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. It's good therapy for me. It's good release. It's good balance for my life. I followed actually a, a friend of mine from the Kingwood area mm-hmm. who was on scholarship over there. And he's like, you should come try out for the team. And and so I did. And the coach and I really hit it off. I wasn't even that good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the coach really liked my work ethic. And, and so he gave me a spot on the team. And so our team was really a tight knit group of guys. There were 15 of us on the team mm-hmm. and we did everything together. We practiced together. We played together. We partied together. And so, you know, a lot of what we did on the weekends was we'd go over to somebody's apartment and we'd cook and have as much beer as possible and, you know, maybe some tequila and some things like that to to have a good time. Um, But, you know, we had a pretty strict schedule as far as workouts during the week. And Mm -hmm. our coach was really big on us going to class. And I really appreciated that from him. And it's actually one of the things I tell any kid getting ready to go to college. I said, whatever you do, get your butt to class. Because that, that will make the difference. I don't care if you're hungover. I know you're going to go out and party and drink and have fun. You know, that, that was something that stuck with me. And so I made every class, even if I was hungover or if we had something going on. You know, and, and my drinking started to go more Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, it was first it was kind of Thursday and Saturday and things progressed. You know, I think we always hear that this is a progressive disease. And yeah. for me, it was. You talked about a really low grade point average. Was that your first semester, you said? Yeah. What was going on that caused that? Uh, You know, I was really immature, I think. And so uh, another reason why I think I didn't take that first drink until 17, I just, I I guess I didn't comprehend things. I I didn't, maybe I didn't want to grow up. I don't know. I wasn't really ready for college and I wasn't into it and I didn't give it a good effort. And so I think that was the one way I could show my parents that I wasn't ready for that was by giving it a try yeah. and which I didn't really try that hard, but to show them like, Hey, I need to go back or maybe I need to do something differently. And so like I said, I, I got a couple of jobs, you know, I was living at their house. They were very kind to let me to do that. And then after doing that for long enough, I said, you know what, I need to go back to school. So did the the fact that you were on the golf team, did that enter into your decision to go back and kind of buckle down a little bit from that first semester? So I wasn't on the team at that time. This ah. was basically a junior college here, you know, which is now Lone Star College, but they called it Kingwood College. And it was right down the street from, from where we lived. And, uh, but it was just something in me that said, you know what, I need to go back. You know, I need to give it another try. But not the junior college. The junior college. Oh, yeah. You so went I, back to the junior oh, college. Yes. Okay. Back it. to the junior college for three semesters. Uh-huh. Got a 4.0 my first semester back. Only took two uh, classes. So I didn't have a full schedule, but I said I'm going to ease back into mm-hmm. it. And then d- got over a 3.0 the next two semesters. And so had a, a good enough GPA. Decided I was going to go to Louisiana mm-hmm. and uh, give it a shot. And uh, they had a good business program at McNeese and um, have a accredited business degree these days. And yeah, it was a second chance, you know, but it was also a second chance for my disease to start to take, to do more progression on it. Well, and going to golf matches and tournaments requires a certain amount of travel, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And so 
in addition to being pretty much unsupervised on campus. What was your experience with that? Yeah, traveling was a lot of fun. Uh, most of the tournaments we went to, we drove to. Mm-hmm. We had a big Ford Econoline van <laughs> that uh, a lot of the teams f- from McNeese, we called it the cheese wagon. <laughs> what is that? Because <laughs> uh, it was blue and yellow. <laughs> and uh, McNeese, I don't know why we named it that. but uh, So we drove to a lot of our events. Mm-hmm. And our coach drove us to pretty much every event. And he mm-hmm. was pretty strict. You know, he was a, a, an, a former Army guy, played for McNeese. Wow. And uh, so he was pretty strict, but we had a blast on our trips and we did not drink on our golf trips or wow. on the tournament trips. Yeah. So you guys were pretty serious about the sport. We you were serious about school at that point. You mentioned drinking, though, starting earlier in the week. That was that was something you were doing. What, were, were your teammates doing that or were you veering off from the crowd at that point? What no, was? no. It was something that progressed. A couple of us said, hey. Wednesday night is, you know, dollar night or something like yeah. that. And so there, were, there was uh, temptation. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, there were a couple of us that were super close. Um, I'm still friends with these guys today. Uh, some of them are not in the program. I'm trying to think. I don't know if any of my teammates are in AA. I know that some of them have been to AA meetings. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if any of them are full participants in I'm curious, how does that make you feel? How has that made you feel over the years that you've stayed in touch with these guys? You've become an alcoholic and had to go into AA. They didn't. And let's say you're looking at your life compared to theirs. How has all that made you feel over the years? You know, part of it makes me sad uh, because there's a couple of guys that I was really close with that I'm not close with anymore. Yeah. And, and part of that was some decisions that I made, some things that I did that were my wrong. Yeah. Um, but, man, some of these guys were just great guys, really personable, you know, smart, good golfers. Yeah. And, and you know, they let some things cloud some of the decisions that they made. But, uh, yeah, so it makes me sad. Uh, but it also makes me glad that I was able to come in here and get it and continue to work a program. So I'm hoping at some point that, that they'll call me, you know, or they'll, they'll grab, gravitate towards, back towards me. Did you ever experience the envy, though, that I had with some of the people I used to drink with, that even though I might have labeled them an alcoholic, they certainly wouldn't label themselves that, and they seemed to get along just fine drinking what they did, whereas I could not. There was always a certain amount of uh, wishful thinking or envy whenever it was I was with them until later on at which their drinking did progress to the point at which I knew that they were having the same problem I had, Mm -hmm. which is why I had to come in actually before they did. But uh, did you experience any of that or did you ever have the the why me's or, you know, how how come he can do it and have a great life and I can't? What was your experience with that? You know, I can honestly say, Howard, that I didn't. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. But I, I just think that I, I grasped the fellowship part of the program pretty quickly. And it made me feel good to see people in meetings, to hear them talk about what's going on with them, to help me through what I was dealing with. And so, yeah, I never, I never felt that way. That's a great question. And, and I never really thought about it. But I just, I had a good feeling right when I came in. And now that doesn't mean I did my steps right away. And it doesn't mean I did everything perfectly, but 
I really enjoyed the people of, and I'm really a, a big time people person. You know, that's what I do for my job. Um, you know, relationships to me are the most important things that we have. Yeah, and it shows in spades in, your, in, in the way you are, the way you carry yourself. And it, it's really a, it's a beautiful thing to behold. But thank you. what you're talking about is exceedingly rare when people are still hanging with some of the people they drank with. I mean, for me, I had to disassociate with those folks because they could never quite understand why I couldn't be, drink anymore and be the friend and the life of the party that I used to be with them when I didn't drink. So it, it was a kind of a natural thing to have happen that I would lose these people as friends. But oftentimes when I hear about guys getting together with their friends and they go hunting, and these are people who they drank with, some of whom might still be drinking, it's always a dangerous endeavor for them to go off for a weekend Absolutely. to go fishing with old college mm -hmm. chums who the guy brings along a cooler, you know, or you're in a duck blind or whatever it is. and. You're with a guy who was your best friend in college and turns out he's still drinking or using marijuana or drugs or whatever else. That feeling of almost like euphoric recall of what it was like with this guy before you stopped. And then when you have a guy like that talking about how great his life is and he's still drinking and he may even be questioning you like, you know, what's up? With, why do you have to keep going this me? And blah, blah, blah. You know. it, it's almost like your disease is ganging up with you, uh, on you with that person's support. Mm -hmm. It hasn't happened to me too severely at any point. But there have been those times at which I think, geez, why can he drink and I can't? You know, and yeah. you go back to that old thinking. I go to enough meetings, though, that the very next meeting or a few meetings later, I'm going to hear somebody mention that and, and I'll be able to process it. But that's what's really dangerous about people who don't go to meetings and still try to engage in that kind of behavior, would you say? 100%. 100%. And I definitely experienced what you referenced in the, I tried to hang out with my old friends for a little bit once I got sober. I tried doing the alcohol, free beer, you know, and those just make you bloated. Yeah, I mean, there was no, yeah, really no yeah, point yeah. in doing that. And, and yeah, just slowly kind of pulled away. You know, do I talk to some of those people? Yeah, I might talk to them and just yeah. hope they're doing well. But, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a healthy uh, growing out of a relationship, yeah. you know, I think. And, and like, this is really what I'm this. I feel like this is what my higher power has got me on this earth to do now is to work this program, is to sponsor men, is to do these types of, you know, whenever somebody asks me to do some something service work, I, I say yes. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. And you're a very service-oriented kind of guy. What's interesting about it is that, you know, having to, having to deal with some of these people either in business or in personal life, I have to make certain decisions about 
the degree to which I can interact with these people. And if it comes down to it, my wife is very supportive of my, of my program and always has been to the extent that if I don't want to go to a party or, or I don't want to interact because there's going to be blatant behavior going on, early in my sobriety, that was pretty important for me to be wary of that kind of thing. But you're talking about a 12-year period. How did things progress during that 12-year period? Could you, when you look back, can you chart certain progressions and milestones during that 12-year descent to the point at which you needed AA? You know, going to to Louisiana, yeah, and and you know, being part of that culture, I think definitely helped to accelerate. Um, it was just more opportunity, right? It was it was more understood that you know, pretty much everywhere you went. I mean, they had drive-through daiquiri booths yeah. <laughs> in Lake Charles, and they put a little piece of tape, just like you have here yeah. on my microphone, uh-huh. over the straw, and they said, don't drink it till you get home. And you're like, yeah, right. As soon as you pull out of that parking lot, you're ripping the tape off and, and doing that. So I just feel like it was, it was more available. It was more accepted. Right. Um, and, you know, hey, you're in college, right? I mean, right. you're there to have a good time. The only way you could have a good time is to go and drink and get loaded. And, man, I, it took me a while to realize that that wasn't the case. You know, it was just a, a false sense of, you know, acceptance or trying to fit in or, you know, all the things I've mentioned before. But sure. that, that definitely. And then, you know, when I graduated um, and I did a couple things in college that I'm really not proud of. And those were also a couple of things that have stuck with me and just like saying, I'm not going to make those mistakes anymore. Sure. And the way I'm not going to make those anymore is I'm not going to uh, impair my, my mind or my body because all those decisions were made. And I'm not trying to make an excuse for what I did. No. I'm just in the realization that it might not have happened had I not been impaired. You know, fast forward to start working, um, you know, still partying a decent amount, you know, kind of Thursdays, happy hours. Did you come know. back to Houston? I did. Louisiana? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A week after I graduated, I started working uh, here in Houston and had an apartment down here in the Galleria. And, you know, I was making a decent amount of money to be able to afford that. Um, so this is maybe four or five years after your first drink. You're in your early 20s. You're back in Houston. Yeah. So yeah, first drink was 17. And then this is, you know, yeah, I'm like 24 uh-huh. at this time. So yeah, yeah, about five, six years after. And then my house became the party house because I had my own place. And, and the guys that I hung out with were younger. And so, you know, then we started kind of using my place as a home base. And you know, we were partying there, and I had an upstairs neighbor that was not very fond of <laughs> our late <laughs> nights. So I almost got kicked out of my first apartment I ever had, and I had to tell the guys, like, hey, we can only party. And, and I actually went up and talked to her one time, and I said, I'm sorry. You know, we're not trying to. She said, just keep it keep it until 10 o'clock. Just don't, don't be loud after 10 because she, she worked. She had a full-time job. And so we had a little agreement there, and so at 10 we would – go hit the bars or, you know, go to wherever our destination was. And so it just, it was just part of who I was. It was just part of my life. You know, I like to have a good time. And you know how it talks about the director in the big book. And that's exactly what I was. I was trying to make everything work out. I was trying to put all the right pieces in place. I was trying to put all the right people in those places. How long was that successful for you? 
Not very long, you know, because, you know, I'm 25 at this time, 26, and I've only got another three and a half years of drinking in me. Uh-huh. Fast forward a little bit more to, to 27, it's the first time I ever used cocaine. And really, I think that was the big catalyst to my progression to where I finally realized that I had a major issue. Had you been using any kind of drugs previous to the cocaine? Just, just marijuana, tried ecstasy. Yeah. Um, I never really cared for it. I didn't either. It, did, yeah. it just wasn't my thing. Um, mm. I don't know. I guess we thought that drinking was maybe elegant or more accepted or it was something that we did. It's something that a lot of people did. Everybody yeah. goes to happy hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was my experience with that, too. Yeah. So you find cocaine at 27. Yeah. What was your experience in the beginning and how did that progress? Yeah, so I loved it. That was really bad for me. And I did it alcoholically or addictively, just like everything else that I did. I did it till it was gone. That gets expensive, doesn't it? That gets really expensive. And having to go back for a second eight ball in the same night and a third mm. and then driving at that time. I can remember one time I was driving to the dealer down Westheimer and I'm in the far left lane. You know, Westheimer's five lanes on each side. And this car came all the way over from the right lane and, and hit me. Mm. And all I could think about was I have cocaine in the car and I've got to get out of here as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Should have never been driving. I've been drinking all night, using a lot of cocaine. And so, yeah, I loved it and it was really bad for me. And I told myself I'd never try cocaine because I don't know if you remember the basketball player named Len Bias. Yeah. Great player. Got drafted second in, I think it was 1985 or 1986. As a celebration, he went out and tried some cocaine and had a, had a heart attack and died. And so I, from that day on, I said, I'm never going to try cocaine. But a woman had enough power over me. She said, hey, let's, let's try some cocaine. And I let my guard down enough to do it. So Yeah, so cocaine is kind of the high earner's drug of choice. You must have been doing all right to be able to afford cocaine on a regular basis. You know, I was doing all right, and, and the woman that I mentioned, she was 12 and a half years older than me. She was doing very well also. So we had a means to be able to, to do that and you know, go out and enjoy you know, life and travel and nice dinners. And, so this is uh, three years before you get to the program, or let's mm-hmm. say three years before the crash. Mm-hmm. Take us up to that point. What occurred during that three years that precipitated your getting into AA? You know, I think just progressively. I love the word progressively because I think it's a huge thing that you have to understand as being an alcoholic. Yeah, sure. And just to know that if you ever decide to go back and try it again, that you're probably going to pick up pretty close to where you left off. Right. Uh-huh. And that's why most people don't make it back. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, progressively just got worse quickly, more drinking, more using, had the means to do so, mm-hmm. which was another you know, downfall. Sure. You know, if I would have lost my job or if something would have happened. But, you know, God had a plan, you know, for me. Still does. Yeah. Um, had some instances here and there where I was, you know, kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. And my relationship started to become rocky. And somebody I thought I was going to marry, you know, was quickly turning, like, just trying to live together, right? Trying mm-hmm. to exist together. And but we were using and drinking together. So that made it tolerable? Yeah, that was the, the common bond, I think. Uh, one of the common bonds in our relationship was that 
it was accepted by both of us, yeah. you know, and, and we felt comfortable, I guess, in doing that because you never want to do it alone. Right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So the wheels start coming off over any particular situation? or Yeah, there was a, a time frame and I can't remember what day of the week it was. I want to say it was a, a Wednesday or a Thursday. Uh-huh. We were taking a trip and we were going to New Orleans uh-huh. and then to Biloxi and then on to Gulf Shores, Alabama. And my girlfriend's uh, uncle uh-huh. was going to meet us in New Orleans, and then he was going to kind of jaunt over with us. He lived in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And I remember I took cocaine on the airplane, mm. one of the worst decisions I ever made, and lucky nothing happened because of that. And obviously those cities I just mentioned are associated with having a good time, right? And so we were drinking and using a lot of drugs, and by the time we made it to Gulf Shores, we were out of cocaine. Hmm. And I remember one night in specific that we were at Florabama, which is a very famous bar that half of it's in Florida and half of it's in Alabama. Yeah. And I just remember acting just, I was out of my mind acting crazy, hmm. like yelling at her and him and saying that she wasn't paying enough of attention to me and and so I remember us going back to our hotel room, and I think I, I just didn't stop. I don't remember everything. but And so she, she was, like, hitting me with my belt. And so ended up calming down and woke up the next morning feeling like the worst I've ever felt, worst mm-hmm. hangover ever. Mm-hmm. My cell phone wasn't working. And she said, hey, you're not going to – we were supposed to go to Atlanta to meet up with her family. She says, you're not going to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, I am going to Atlanta. You're not going to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. You know? So once I came to the realization that I wasn't going to Atlanta, I had to find my way back to Houston. My cell phone wasn't working. I just felt like everything was going against me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to get a flight booked from New Orleans to, to Houston and uh, had to drive from where we were in Gulf Shores, which is a couple hours. Mm-hmm. I just remember just feeling terrible, but I made it. I got on the plane, made it back to Houston, played one of the worst rounds of golf of my life. <laughs> I was feeling terrible. I was playing terrible, scoring terrible. And people laugh at that because they're like, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't work with you. And yeah. so four days later, went to my first AA meeting. Yeah. So that was a Sunday and I went to my first meeting on a Thursday. Is it safe for me to assume that the way you looked at your golf game had an influence over your decision to get sober? You know, I've never thought about it like that, but definitely playing that shitty round on <laughs> on that Sunday, I probably had a lot to do with saying, hey, well, you should just give it a try, right? What's the worst thing that could happen? You didn't like it or, you know, they, they didn't let you in or they didn't accept you. I can so vividly remember walking into that room and those five people who came up to me. And, there are, and most of those guys are in recovery still. Still in the room. Still doing it. Wow. So when, when you first showed up, I, you talked about earlier slithering in halfway through the meeting, everything else. Did you ever have the opportunity to identify yourself as the newcomer over which everybody focused during the meeting, or did you miss that opportunity? I, I missed that opportunity. Uh, now, if I did go to a different meeting, I would say I'm new here. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the, and the way that I got a desire chip was after the meeting. I didn't really know, you know, like what I was supposed to do. I don't even remember if I heard them give away chips at that first meeting because I was just like trying to get my bearings straight. And so 
when the guys came up to me because they knew I was new. Yeah. You know, there and there was only 15 or 20 people in that meeting. So mm-hmm. it's pretty rec- and they it was the same 15 or 20 pretty much every day. Yeah. So they said, have you been drinking? I said, no, I, the last time I had a drink was on Saturday, you know, which was the 29th of, of 2004 of July. Mm-hmm. And so they said, here you go. Here's, here's a desire chip. And they said, just come back tomorrow. And so that's what I started doing. You know, I started listening to what people told me. Didn't do everything that people told me, but I tried to, to do as many of the things as I could. What kind of resistance did you have, if any, towards what you were being told and what you were observing in meetings? You know, I don't feel like I had much resistance at all. Mm. I don't know. I just felt like people were so genuine. And if they were willing to share that in a meeting, that I felt like, okay, I can get on board with that. I mean, that's not my story, or maybe that's not exactly how it happened for me. But I, I heard the couple of similarities in their story or in their share or in what they were going through in life. Yeah. And so I wasn't resistant to that. I was a little resistant to working my steps quickly. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it my way. And my sponsor was like, look, this is your program. You can work it the way you want to. Nothing in here says you have to do it this way. So you got a sponsor right away? I did. I did. I had a temporary sponsor. Mm-hmm. He was one of the guys that came up to me after the meeting and said, come back tomorrow. He was actually leading the meeting that day. Oh, cool. And so I, yeah, I heard something from him that it just, I was like, I can relate with that. I, I like this guy. And so he said, I'll take you on as a temporary sponsor. His name is Bill B. He's a great man and um, he's still sober. I think he has uh, 25 years mm-hmm. or, or will have 24 or 25 uh, this year. He'll always tell me, man, I, I didn't give you a chance and you know what. And he said, there was, you know, you had the rock star girlfriend. Yeah. You're young. He's like, I never pegged you for making it. As is the case with most sponsors, we, we start out, and, and I know you sponsor guys too. You start out and you'd like the guy to get to work right away. You were offering Bill some resistance to that, I, I guess, huh? Yeah. And he didn't push me a lot. Yeah. You know, he kind of said, look, call me. And this is something I do with my sponsees, especially uh-huh. in the in the first thirty to ninety days, uh-huh. depending on where they're at. Is I tell them they got to call me every day. Yeah. So he said, just call me every day. We'll talk about it. I honestly don't remember if he said, "Hey, are you thinking about doing the steps?" Or uh-huh. you know, what what do you think about working the program? I'm not sure we ever got to that point. He and I. He was just there as a sounding board for me, somebody that I could reach out to yeah. and somebody that was holding me accountable, uh, which is a big part of, of what we do on a daily basis. So part of that accountability, obviously, you got through the steps and you started sponsoring guys pretty much soon after that. You know, no, no. Um, what I started doing pretty soon after uh, finishing my steps was doing service work through the Houston Recovery Community, Sober Recreation Committee. Which makes sense for a guy like you. Right. Because you're really into that kind of stuff. Yeah, know? I want to be social. I want to be around people. Yeah. And and my first was actually with a, a, an adolescent group mm-hmm. here in Houston. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I always knew I wanted to work with adolescents or athletes. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I first started doing. I, I told somebody this the other day, and they were f- shocked. I didn't take my first person through the steps until I was about 12 years sober. Mm. So I'd had sponsees. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I guess it was God's plan for me that I, I wasn't going to have a bunch of sponsees early. Right. I've got a lot now. And I don't, I'm not trying to say that to brag. But no, I get that. I have a hard time saying no. 
And so if somebody's willing to do the work or if somebody's willing to, to do what it takes, I'm willing to, to be there for them and be a sounding board for them. Well, you were a real integral part of, of people participating in things outside of AA with AA people. The, the concerts that went on, the softball, the bowling, the, you know, you name it. It's, it's like that, that sober recreation committee has done some incredible things over the years. And especially for people who are single in sobriety, mm-hmm. it's been a great opportunity for people to get connected with others in the program in a way that extends out the gifts of sobriety to the rest of your life. And, and I've seen you do that. That's how I've gotten to know you over the years because yeah. you've been so active with that. So when I look at a man doing that degree of service and he's not sponsoring, I'm thinking, well, of course he's not. He doesn't have any time with everything else he's doing of service. So it's a good thing that there are people who sponsor other people. It's a good thing there are people who you know, get involved with clubs and other people who get involved with the correctional facilities committees and, and taking the message into uh, meetings and uh, rehab centers. So we've all got our little roles to play, which I've seen you playing just consistently over the years. And, and I know that anytime an announcement is to be made about something coming up, you're usually the guy to be doing it. So <laughs> that's really neat. Now, that to me sounds like one of the really big gifts of sobriety for you. You've been sober 19 years or going on 19 years. What have been some of the things that you have faced during that 19-year period that you can look back on them and getting through them was something that you probably could not have done without being sober? Or maybe some good things that happened to you that wouldn't have been there for you had you not gotten sober. Can you run through a few of those for me? Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm glad you asked this question. So I actually have something in my phone where I have all my years of sobriety on there. Huh. And what are the like three of the most important things or three of the mo- biggest things that happened that year in sobriety? So I'm not going to pull it out. And I'm not going to go verbatim. <laughs> but I have experienced uh, romance issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> breakups. Yeah. I have experienced financial difficulties. I have lost jobs in sobriety. Thought my life was going to be over. I have gotten back into relationships. I have experienced financial difficulties again. Hmm. I have gotten married. I have uh, a new family that Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a part of. I've started a business in sobriety. Um, I've played a lot of good rounds of golf, and I've played a lot of bad rounds of golf (laughs) in sobriety. I think I need to, to put that in there. So I've done life in sobriety. Yeah. You know? That is so cool. Yeah. Well, the fact that you've even got it in your phone, I mean, that to me, that is, that is somebody who's really taking serious notice of the changes that are occurring in their lives and then demonstrating the joy of it as I see it. I see it in your face. I see it in your eyes right now. Mm-hmm. But I also see it when I see you talking to newcomers and other people who are wondering, am I going to be stupid, boring, and glum? Or will I absolutely insist on enjoying life? And I, I see you with that absolute insistence. And I think it's an incredible, an incredible quality to have. Do you have a certain way that you process those things? I mean, obviously, one of the classic signs of maturity in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the sense of knowing what to do when certain things happen. You know, do you go to a meeting about it? Do you talk to a sponsor about it? Do you pray about it? In which order do you do those things? 
And when you encounter tough times, can you kind of reflect on what led to the tough times and see where you fell down on your meetings and weren't reading the literature and weren't sponsoring enough and doing the other things? What kind of approach do you have for kind of self-analyzing the good things and the bad things that happened? Is there, is there a pattern that you see in that regard? Howard, I think you were just looking inside my brain and yeah. you just saw all the things I was going to say. Yeah. So great job on that. Ahead, You're a psychic too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, given the tools that we've been given through as a result of working the steps and reading the books and the literature and, and sharing what we share in meetings, that's the design for living. Mm. And that's the design for living when things are good and when things are okay and when things are not good. Two of the things I always tell people or newcomers or whoever I talk to is, to me, it's all about my perspective and my attitude. Mm -hmm. If I have a good perspective of where I'm at in my life and I relate that to where other people are in life, mm -hmm. that's number one. Number two is if I have a good attitude towards whether it's a good situation or a bad situation, I'm not getting too high and low. Like mm -hmm. I'm trying to stay kind of on the, the equator. I'm, I'm trying to stay, you know, even keeled. Mm -hmm. And I don't want things to get me too upset, too excited. I like being excited. I like being happy. Um, you mentioned accountability earlier. Yeah. In what regards do you remain accountable? And is there a certain group of people or a certain venue in which that accountability really demonstrates itself? Yeah. And, and that's a great point to make is if you show up enough, the accountability is basically there for you, right? Because appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Because you're going to call me. Right. You're going to say, hey, Chris, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Howard, I really appreciate you checking in with me. I've been traveling for the last two weeks. I'm going to be at on Thursday. Okay, great. I'll see you then. And then that's what got us to, to sit down and have our, have our chat today. I finally committed to sitting down with you to doing that. But the accountability is there if you work the program. I have the same sponsor I've had since day one. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually, we talked yesterday. So we talk a couple times a week. We don't talk every day. Um, that's just the way it's worked for us. Mm -hmm. um, and then just I like to call my sponsees and check in on them. That helps them keep accountable. And then they'll, you know, when I'm giving something to them, they're going to then ask, hey, how are you doing? What's going on with you? Because I've, I've got some situations in life that I'm not like really, really excited about right now. Yeah. Two in, two in particular that I can think of, but that's okay. That's part of life. I'm, I'm never going to have the perfect life. Never, nothing is ever going to be easy or perfect. And so what I have to do is walk through that. And if I walk through it with great perspective and a great attitude, I'm going to walk through there with my head held high. Yeah. And it may not go my way. Yeah. But that's okay. Well, I, love, I love the way you frame that because the right, you know, going into something with the right attitude presumes a certain amount of reliance upon a higher power to go into the situation and fit in or win or prevail or get something of substance out of the situation. Mm -hmm. So that attitude is a, is a big one. Re regarding your, your spiritual condition, I'm, I'm curious what your relationship and how you've seen God working in your life during the periods in which you were drinking and then sober. Was there a noticeable difference for you in your spirituality? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if anybody told you it wasn't, you know, yeah. then they, they really don't have a relationship with a higher power. And um, like I said, we went to church as, as I was younger, so it was kind of forced down my throat. Oh, yeah. I didn't have a relationship with God when I was drinking. Yeah. Even though I did, right? I didn't rely on Him. Like, I wanted Him when I wanted something. Or I wanted Him, you know, only at certain times. But now... He has never let me down, right? Yeah, I get that. And I use that to say, look, I'm not going to ever get everything I want. Mm-hmm. But if I can have a relationship with him and I can, if I can give him the power and not put the power inside of me to direct my life. And that's what I ask for every day. And mm-hmm. I ask for it multiple times a day. God, please direct my thinking, my actions and whatever I'm going to do today. You're way better at it than I am. Yeah, that's beautiful. The way you're stating it, it's a foregone conclusion. And I like the fact that it is a foregone conclusion. If I can go into the next situation relying upon God as much as I do when I'm looking back and seeing how I relied upon God, then I'm probably in a pretty good place. That's, that's a really good place to be. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one thing about, I know you're involved in one of these dinner get-togethers that the men do. And it's usually the much younger guys who are doing that these days. Is there anything that you see amongst the younger members of Alcoholics Anonymous that you look at and say, gee, I wish they kind of got this other aspect of the program? Or it seems to me when I was their age, I reacted differently and maybe they need to see things different. Do you ever get the sense of that with the young guys you're hanging with? Yeah, I think that's a, a normal comparison. Yeah. It, it might it be because, you know, times are just so different between, you know, when you grew up, when I grew up and now this whole new generation. Um, so even though they might come in for some of the wrong reasons, I still am glad that they came in and I hope that they'll find a reason to stay because yeah. I came in for the wrong reasons, <laughs> two, two wrong reasons right. to keep a job and to save a relationship. Right. Little did I know I was going to get what an amazing life I've been given and, mm. and to have relationships with people like yourself and the work that you're doing with the podcast is, is fantastic, man. This is what people need to hear. And it's what I'm hoping that they will hear. And the takeaway in your story, I think, is so rich and encompassing of the, the many gifts that reveal to us as sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I see no reason to do anything different than I'm and I've always done them in the program, and I see that in you as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to just add now that we're kind of wrapping things up? I wish I had something <laughs> profound to say right now, Howard. I really do. <laughs> it's been a great chat. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on a, a high. I'm going to be taking my wife and my stepson to a concert tonight to a band that they've never seen that I've seen. So oh yeah, super excited about that. Who is that? Um, it's going to be a holiday weekend. Like I just, I'm going to get to play golf a couple times. I'm going to get to spend time with family. Good for you. So just like I said, just going back to that perspective and attitude, I, I feel like if you are struggling or if you're somebody that's, you know, in recovery right now and you're struggling, take a look at those couple of things. I yeah. think that it's really helped me just to have, to have a general positive outlook on life. 
Yeah, and it shows, and it showed in everything I've noticed about you over the years, and it certainly twinkled today. So uh, I want to thank you for doing this, Chris. This has been a, a really just a great opportunity for us to get to know each other a little bit better. And I, to find out about our similarities that we've had in our past. Yeah, yeah, man. I love you, and I, I, I admire and honor the program that you've built for yourself. I can't thank you enough for doing this, man. Well, thank you very much. I love you too, brother. And thank you for leading me down the path because you you were one of those guys that was there and I uh, saw you at a lot of the meetings that I went to when I first got in. And that was something that was referenced in our meeting today. Yeah. was a lot of guys that had long-term sobriety and that were, were role models. Those are the types of role models that we want to see and that we want to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, good. So this worked out great. And again, many thanks. My friend. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Chris W., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more than 120 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast series strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.